The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where this week is every week we fight fake news about real estate and rents going up some ridiculous amount of money, which I'm going to address in a moment. Uh, this is question and answer week, and uh, it's the normally the last, the last Wednesday of every month, which means it's kind of a... I don't want to call it an open mic show because golly, who knows what will happen if I say that. But it, it's a week that you can, you know, ask all kinds of questions about different topics because there's no guest here today. And, you know, I will do my best to uh, help you with whatever problem you are dealing with. And if not, I will reach out to some other folks. I already reached out once today to Jerry Fink on a contractor question and he answered it. Now tell tell that particular listener the answer. In any case, the way you would ask your question would either be via phone at 877-772-9658, 877-772-9658, or via email. My email is askvina, A-S-K-V, like in Victor, E-N-A, at gmail.com. There's a report that came out from the National Association of Realtors that's making headlines all over the Cincinnati area and I'm sure in a bunch of other cities because it seems like whenever I see these reports, I get then get emails from people saying, look, it says my city was in the top 10 highest rent increases and now the city council is talking about rent caps. And it seems like it doesn't matter where someone's writing from, they're somehow in the top 10. Like there, well, there are hundreds of cities in the U.S. and somehow when these reports come out, everybody is in the top 10, depending on, you know, what their little local paper says. So, yeah, uh, according to the NAR, which I assume is getting its data from uh, rents, uh, properties that are rent listed for rent in MLS. It does. It's not real. I'm actually looking at the report and it's not stu- super specific about how they got the data, but if it's from MLS properties, those do tend to be the higher end properties. A lot of us who have rentals that are more in the affordable category don't uh, list them in MLS. We just put an ad in Craigslist or on Facebook Marketplace and people come and rent them. But uh, apparently rents across the country are up 5.5% year over year. And there's some data in uh, reported in CityBeat today that the Cincinnati part of that is uh, that overall uh, studios went up 2.1%, single bedrooms, one bedrooms, 7.3, and two bedrooms, 12.7%. What I don't see here is your typical three bedroom single family home that people rent. So I'm thinking these are probably apartment rents that we're talking about. 
The reason that Realtor.com gave is rising rents are likely the result of multiple factors as home prices hit record highs and affordability becomes an issue for potential home buyers. The appetite for rentals may rise as would-be buyers opt for renting. Further increasing vaccination rates may be boosting confidence in the safety of moving, which drives up demand and prices. Okay, fine. A couple of things I'd like to point out. A 5.5% increase in rents is not surprising in an environment where the real rate of inflation is 5.5% year over year. That's exactly the rate of inflation over the past 12 months. And and some things have inflated a lot more. Used cars, 42%. 40, used cars are up 42%. Everything's up. Gas is up. You know, gas is up, what, almost 30%. And rents are up 5.5% and we're all going to, you know, get super concerned about this also the the big glaring it's like the elephant in the room about increasing rents all over the united states and particularly in cincinnati is that there has been a huge anti-rental legislation move going on around uh, the we can start with the cdc eviction moratorium i mean that pretty much affected all rental housing providers But then taking Cincinnati, for example, in the past 12 months, we've seen the institution of required, quote, deposit insurance, which is neither insurance nor a deposit. But 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 people who provide housing in the city of Cincinnati have to promote this idea that their applicants should go out and buy from a private company uh, this deposit insurance that doesn't actually pay their deposit for them, but they still have to pay for it every month. Do you think that might make you less likely to want to be a rental housing provider in Cincinnati? And also a, a mandatory maximum $25 late fee, no matter what the rent is. So if your rent is $500 a month, the maximum late fee you can be charged is $25 a month. If it's $1,500 a month, the maximum is $25 a month, which kind of encourages you on that high end to say, hmm, that's like a really low interest loan. I don't have to pay my rent this week. I could pay it next week and I only pay $25 more. Isn't that awesome? All of these, you know, efforts and suggestions and proposals to, uh, you know, make things more fair for renters are, of course, increasing the costs for the rental housing providers, as is inflation. But more importantly, it's causing them to sell their houses to homeowners, people. We've got the hottest market in in history, probably, certainly in my memory. And, you know, you're sitting here hearing, well, you're not you're not allowed to collect your rent if your tenant says doesn't have to prove, but says I'm doing my best. I'll be homeless if you kick me out. I was COVID affected. They just have to sign a piece of paper that says that and you can't get rid of them for it's now been what? Let's see, September to July. So it's been nine months that a lot of people haven't collected rent. And you've got these homeowners who want to buy your house for a lot of money. What are you going to do? You're going to sell your house to a homeowner for a lot of money. So the thing that I would like to see the NAR study is how many rentals in Cincinnati, single family homes we're talking about that were available in January of 2020 as rental properties. They were either being lived in by a tenant or alternatively they were being, you know, offered to a tenant no longer exist because they are homeowner properties because the city made it really unattractive to invest money here and be a rental housing provider here and do all the things here that 
need to be done in order to be a rental housing provider. And a lot of people threw up their hands and said, yeah, you know what? I'm going to let one of these homeowners pay me too much money for my property and I'm going to move on and do something else, invest in another city or put it in the stock market or Bitcoin or something. So there's before you, before you hear a report like that and go, oh my gosh, those greedy landlords are raising their rent for no reason because they're greedy. You might want to think about that it's a very complicated system and that even our legislators don't seem to understand all the things that go into it and the effects of the things that they like to pass. So, man, blew the first 10 minutes of question and answer week ranting about this thing. Um, so we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we really seriously will answer your questions. Me and George, we're going to answer your questions. Oh, yeah. George is going to talk about driving for dollars, his favorite thing. 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am your very calm host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's all good. And it's question and answer week like it is on the last Wednesday of every month. And uh, I'm going to be picking up a whole bunch of questions here that were sent out, sent to me in advance by people who are on our email list that get, you know, emails every week that say, hey, here's what's coming up. If you got any questions about it, send them ahead of time. Uh, you could probably get on that list by going to realliferealestate.com and also get access to, I don't know, it's several hundred prior shows at this point. Like we've just, we every week these guys record it, they put it up on podcast and then we put it on realliferealestate.com. Uh, so you can go there if you want to make sure that you're getting notifications of this stuff every week. Uh, first question is from Diane. Oh, and by the way, folks, um, when you're sending an email, it's awesome if you can tell me where you're from. Because some, sometimes, in this, question, in this case, Diane, you're good because it doesn't really affect, it doesn't really affect what's happening here. But um, if you tell me where you're from, sometimes I, I would change the answer if you were, for instance, in a deed of trust state instead of a mortgage deed state or something. So uh, Diane's question is, how do I structure a deal as a realtor that I find for a buyer and that the investor is selling but is not listed in MLS? Now, Diane, that might be a more complicated question than you think it is because sometimes the deals investors are selling are ones that they have bought and rehabbed. And in that case, they are usually, they are usually willing and able to pay you a 3% commission. They're not going to pay 6% because you didn't list it, but they're usually willing to pay you a 3% commission for bringing a really qualified buyer and making their lives easy, like a pre-qualified buyer that you're certain can close. Um, sometimes what the investor is selling is not actually a property. It's a, it's a contract. It's a wholesale deal, which means that those are usually you know, fairly thin margins and the part of it that the investor would get for selling the contract is not enough to pay a 3% commission to a, an agent bringing a buyer to the table. And some, some uh, wholesalers for that reason, they just don't, they say, look, if you want to bring a buyer, that's fine, but he has to pay you, not me. I, I don't have enough money here to, so, so imagine, imagine this scenario, Diane, the, the contract that's being sold, the total price to buy it is 160, but the wholesalers built in part of that is only five. 
he can't he can't afford to pay you a three percent commission on one sixty when what he's getting is is five for a successful assignment of the contract, right? So some wholesalers just have as a policy, you know, I I don't I don't respond to agents, and some will say that's fine, but you got to mark up the price to your buyer to whatever you need to get paid. And those deals are a little more complex because your buyer has to be a cash buyer, cannot be somebody who's uh, trying to go to the bank and get a loan. Uh, so just, 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 go, just go negotiate. All right. That's what I'm telling you is just go to, if you see a deal that you like, or one of your buyers is going to like, pick up the phone, call the investor, say, here's where I am. Where are you with this? And don't be offended if they say, I can't really work with you because there's no commission built in here, but many times you will find that they are willing to work something out so that you can get paid and they can get paid. Thanks for your question, Diane. Um, let's see. Next up uh, from Elaine, who I'm going to assume is in Dayton because she has a duplex in Dayton, Ohio. She says, I have a duplex in Dayton, Ohio. How do I find a potential buyer who's willing to offer some multiple strategies to buy? Well, Elaine, that actually shouldn't be that hard. Here's how you do that. You let it be known that you are open to multiple ways of selling. Okay, so um, if you, for instance, are a member of Cincinnati RIA and come to the haves and wants calls every Friday morning, if you got on that call and said, I have a duplex in Dayton and my basic goal is to not manage it anymore, get the best price I can, whatever that is. And I am open to any sort of offer you want to make. Just, you know, make me an offer and we'll talk it through and figure it out. You're going to get like 16 phone calls after that is over. Because there's lots and lots of people who are looking for non-bank ways of buying properties. And if you're willing to offer one of those non-bank ways, um, you know, they will come to you and say, here's what I would propose that we do. And you make sure that you have all the paperwork done up legally by a competent real estate attorney and that you do check out your buyer because you don't want to sell it today and have to take it back next week. But I, I really don't think it's going to be a problem if you put it in front of investors and particularly creative investors and just say, I'm I'm open. You know, you, you, you suggest what you'd like to do and I'll counter with how that would work for me and we'll make a deal. Uh, okay. So this question uh, is from Tishani who says, I came across a multiple listing service listing for a three family home for about 349. The seller is willing to do seller financing for 20% down a five to 10 year balloon and interest only payments and an interest rate in the 4% range. Wow. I don't even know where that is. And now I'm interested in it. Uh, taxes and insurance will be paid into escrow. The first floor has two tenants the stores and a regular tenant. The second floor is vacant and the third floor has a tenant. The, the agent is finding out the rental income. And since the building is zoned residential three family to keep the commercial space, it would need to be rezoned for mixed use. What questions should I ask? What would be my next step? Looks like the units are in need of some rehab according to pictures in the MLS. Okay. So let me start with Tashani. I think what you're going to find out is that 349 is too much money for this property. And I don't, 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 Tune me out now because I'm not saying that it's not that it's too much money at, with a 4% seller carry back for 10 years. I'm saying like it probably wouldn't sell for that for cash. I'm guessing that the reason for the rest of these terms 
the reason that he's, you know, being so generous is to offer a 4% interest rate and a 10 per 10 year balloon, which is a pretty long balloon. And, um, you know, 20% down isn't great. You probably, probably need to negotiate that is because 349 is more than the house, than the property is worth in the condition it's in. So you do know, you do, do need to go look at it. You do need to go evaluate what needs to be done to really bring it up into top condition, get that middle unit rented, all of that sort of stuff. The other little fish hook in my brain about this is that is this thing about it needing to be rezoned. So it's non-conforming, but part of the rent, part of the current rental income is coming from a non-conforming use tenant. So I think I would also want to make a call to the zoning department to find out exactly what the process and cost of having it rezoned to mixed use is and also get their opinion on how likely it is that you will get that zoning variance. If you can't get the zoning variance, you've just lost the income from two of those units unless this is a building that could be, you know, those two units could be turned back into apartments or something and rented out to non-commercial tenants. Uh, I would also, you know, maybe try and negotiate the 20% down. Definitely go for the 10-year balloon rather than the 5-year balloon. Um, interest only, is that something you really want? Because you could, of course, say, well, I'll pay, you, I'll pay you principal and interest. That would decrease your cash flow but increase your mortgage pay down, obviously. Uh, I think there's a lot of questions here, but I think your very next step is call that agent back. Say, I'd like to take a walkthrough on it because I need to get a handle on how much work it needs. And uh, when we get there, maybe you can give me the current rental and expense numbers because that'll help you evaluate what kind of offer you really need to be making. It does look like a decent opportunity from the very little I know about it. And I thank you for your question. Um, George, I'm going to have to ask, this is the other George, not you, George. There's George who just wrote to me, George from Louisiana. I'm going to have to ask you, answer your question via email because public radio, I can't recommend specific products and services on public radio. A uh, question from Joe who says Monday night, that's a, there was a Maria Corey meeting Monday night where I spoke about some creative finance deals I had done over the last year. You were talking about a, using a mortgage to secure option. Will that work in a deed of trust state? And is the mortgage secured by the option or the property? I wasn't familiar with that. So could you talk about it some more? Okay. So all credit here to Pete Fortunato, who was the first person from whom I heard the term mortgage to secure option. And let me, for the folks who weren't there Monday night, let me give the quickest explanation I can about what that is and what it is used for. When someone grants you an option to buy their property, they're making you a promise, right? They're making a promise that if, if you, listener, decide to exercise your option during the option period that they will in fact sell it for that price. That's the promise they're making. And it's it's a legal promise. I mean, they write it down in, a, in, a, in an option document. Option document's recorded. You know, if they, if 10 years passed and you said, all right, I'm ready to exercise my option. They said, no way am I selling you 
this property for that price. Inflation's been 12% for the last 10 years and it's doubled in value. You can sue them. You can take them to court and try and force them into keeping their promise. But a mortgage is a document that secures a promise, right? Oh, no, it's not, Vina. It secures a loan. What's a loan? It it doesn't secure a loan. It secures your promise to pay back that loan, doesn't it? So mortgages can secure any promise, not just the promise that, hey, you you loan me $100,000 and I'm going to pay you back under the following terms. It can also secure a promise to sell you a property at a future time at a particular price. So that's why it's called a mortgage to secure option. The security, and this goes to your question, Joe, is not the option. That's the, the option is the promise. The security is the property. It's, it's if you don't keep your promise, I get to auction off your property to make you keep your promise sort of thing, right? It's, if you think of a normal mortgage and note situation where the note is the promise and the mortgage is the security to back that promise. In this case, the option is the promise and the mortgage is the security to back that promise. Now, I'll tell you why I got so excited the first time I heard about mortgages to secure option. We're just, we're just going to be super advanced here today, people. Um, the idea of both option of buying, buying options and also buying properties on lease option always bothered me for the simple reason that Without the title to the property, my money that I have put in it is somewhat subject to the behaviors of the seller who keeps the deed in their name. So what does that mean? Well, let's see. Today I buy, I I, I lease option George's property. George, who's sitting here in the studio, I lease option his property from him. And he agrees that he's going to sell it to me for $200,000 Anytime in the next five years. He's, he's all in favor of that. <laughs> we'll talk after the show, George. He's thumbs upping me over here. He doesn't, he doesn't know this, but we're going to talk about this after the show. Um, so I give him, I give him $10,000 right now for, to secure that option, right? Like this is, this is, I'm giving you money. You're giving me an option. And then next year, George sort of forgets to file his income taxes. And then he also does that in year three and year four and year five. And by year five, the IRS is caught up with the fact that George, the taxpayer, has disappeared. And they calculate his taxes for him. And they put a lien against this house. So the problem is now I go to George and I say, George, I'm ready to buy your house for $200,000. And he says, okay, so small problem. The IRS has a half million dollar lien against my house. So as much as I want to keep my promise, I, as a practical matter, I can't. Cause I, the IRS can't be paid off for the $200,000, well, 180,000, 190,000, cause I already gave you 10,000 down, um, that, that you want to pay for it. Well, the, what the mortgage to secure option does is it puts me as the optionee in the line of title, in the chain of title. Options don't. I can record the option all day long, and that's that's a public notification that George has made this promise, but it doesn't put me in the chain of title. The mortgage secure option does put me in the chain of title, and it puts me before the IRS because the IRS came 
afterwards. So now George would like to sell me the property. He can't sell me the property. In theory, I could take George to foreclosure, George's property foreclosure. People don't go to foreclosure. Properties go to foreclosure. I could take George's property to foreclosure and wipe out the lien that's behind me, which is the IRS lien. So that was when I first heard about mortgages secure option. I was like, oh my gosh, that solves that problem that I've had mentally with buying an option and lease option forever and ever and ever. So yeah, it's it's good stuff. All right. So um, we need to take a break so George can tell, talk to me about giving me an option to buy his house for $200,000. Um, if you have questions, because it's question and answer week, that's why I'm just kind of, you know, randomly reading questions and answering them. It's question and answer week. It's not random. It's every last Wednesday of the month. You can call them in at 877-772-9658, 877-772-9658, or you can send them via email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate and um, that means, you know, kind of open open questions, and we've got all kinds of them here. So whatever you want to know, send it on in, and I will do my best to answer it. I did get a question earlier today from April in Nashville that I, I decided to go ahead and forward that to Jerry Fink, who's been, you know, he's a rehabber. He's been on the show many times. He's actually doing a class on Saturday about how to create a detailed scope of work for to make sure that your rehabs kind of stay on time and on schedule and that you are in complete agreement with your contractor about who does what when and at what price you can find out more about that if you wanted to go to cincinnatiria.com he gave a much more complete answer than i would have been able to april says do you do you recommend not giving a deposit to contractors finding good contractors is extremely difficult and i don't want to turn away a good contractor but i also don't want to start an unhealthy business practice thoughts yeah my thought was boy that is the start of a lot of tragic stories i've heard about people who gave a contractor a ten thousand dollar deposit and then never saw them before but jerry was a little more measured jerry's answer was absolutely not there are only three reasons a contractor will want money up front. Number one, they need money to finish the job they're currently working on, which isn't yours. Number two, they don't know or trust you. If that's the case, it's fine to escrow money with your attorney. No one has actually ever taken me up on this one, though. Number three, they need the money to buy supplies and materials. That's understandable. I will pay the supply house directly for the materials. I do not give it to the contractor and have them pay for them. Good contractors have accounts at supply houses or credit cards to float the costs for 30 days until they're paid. And of course, the fourth reason is a few of them are scam artists who are going to take the money and run. I don't pay for work until it's done and verified and inspected if required by code. If it's a longer-term project, I will set up milestones for periodic releases of funds. The line item pricing I use with my scope of work easily supports this. Big boy contractors will understand and be okay with these rules. So there you go, April. A really complete answer from 
an actual guy who's rehabbed a hundred houses, not like, or hundreds, not, I just, I just understand he's rehabbed like a thousand houses. Uh, okay. Let's go to line one and talk to Mr. Cleveland. Mr. Cleveland, welcome to real life real estate. Yes. Thank you for having me. Can you hear me? Okay. We can. Okay, great. I wanted to, uh, ask a uh, follow-up on that uh, mortgage to secure option. Go ahead. So so you're able to, in that case, force the seller to sell for you, to sell the property to you for that 200000 And then the IRS and the government have to find another way to get their money out of the seller. It's not quite that simple because, first of all, I don't know anybody who has ever actually had to go and foreclose on their mortgage to secure option. All right. Like, I, I don't know that this is this is really a tested thing, but um, the idea is that with that thing sitting there, it. A, it's almost impossible for the seller to sell to anyone else because if anybody else tried to buy it, they would do a title search, right? And then the title company would call you up and say, hey, we need you to re- release this mortgage to secure option. And you'd say, I'm not going to do that because the mortgage to secure option was to make sure that they kept their promise, which was to sell me the property and you're not calling about my closing. Or alternatively, of course, you could say, okay, I will release it, but here's the terms. I have the right to buy the hot property for two hundred. He's selling it for three hundred. I'll release it for a hundred. Right? So there's it, it gives you like a kind of impactful way to keep the keep the seller on the straight and narrow, right? They agree to it today. Ten years from now they decided they shouldn't have agreed to it. It gives you a way to negotiate with that seller, keep the seller from selling to somebody else, but also yes. Anybody else's lien would fall behind your lien. So in a, in a worst case scenario, in theory, with a well-drafted mortgage, you could go foreclose on the property. That, that doesn't, that doesn't make the seller give it to you, right? That just, what, what that does is it puts it up at a, at a public auction where then you can then credit bid to whatever the value of that mortgage is. And when the ham, when the gavel drops, whether you were the buyer or somebody else was the buyer and so you just collected money, everybody behind them is wiped out. Now the IRS and some state liens have a special little treatment in foreclosures, which is that they typically have 180 days after a foreclosure to basically undo the thing and auction it off themselves. They can, they have, they have six months where they can say, you know what, uh, we think there was a lot more equity in this property than it sold for. We want to get paid. So we're going to put everything back like it was before. Give, give this, give the buyer their money back, give the seller their deed back. And now we're going to auction it off through an IRS auction. And, uh, cause we think we can get more money and therefore get paid. That very rarely happens with residential properties. If you ever see that happen, it's going to be with like a shopping mall or a giant apartment complex or something like that. But it, but it does still kind of hang there in the air for 180 days. Most people who are buying 
properties at foreclosure that had an IRS lien on them, don't do any major work to them for 180 days until that expires. So you basically would have your money tied up for 180 days before, possibly. Yeah, if you buy a property at a foreclosure auction, okay. Let me say, let me say it this way. I've seen people not do that. I've seen people like they buy a property knowing there was an IRS lien on it. They go in and they do eighty thousand dollars worth of work, and then they go ahead and sell it. And this all happens within six months. That's too scary for me personally, but I see people do that too because they know that the IRS very rarely looks at a residential single family home and says, gosh, there was a lot of equity that went missing there at that foreclosure auction. I mean, usually the foreclosure auctions pull a high bid, right? I mean, it's a competitive auction. They pull a, they pull a bid that's often more than what you or I would want to pay for that property. So it's, it's rare that the IRS does that. So that's probably why some of my colleagues aren't too worried about that. Got it. Thank you very much. You are very welcome. We need to take another quick break. Probably have time to answer one or two more questions if you wanted to send them in to askvina at gmail.com or call 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Oh, while I'm sorting through the questions here, uh, I'd like to remind everybody who lives in like the the area south of Mansfield, Ohio, but north of, say, Louisville, Kentucky, that uh, there's a couple of real estate expos coming up next week. Golly, right on, we're right on top of it. Um, the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati is holding its annual uh, Tri-State Real Estate Expo on August the 5th. That's next Thursday. Central Ohio RIA, Co-RIA is holding its uh, Central Ohio Real Estate Expo on August the 3rd. Those are just networking meetings. Like there's, there's, there actually are some little TED Talks that are being given, some like little mini 30-minute real estate lectures, but it's mostly a chance to meet a bunch of vendors and service providers and lenders and IRA custodians and insurers who obviously are investor-friendly uh, and to meet each other. So those meetings are both free and open to the public. To attend the Cincinnati event, it is CincinnatiRia.com. Just pre-register so that uh, you have a ticket and they know to buy you food. And at in Columbus, register at CentralOhioRia.com. A question here from Darren from Michigan. He says, there's a potential deal I just came across and I'm wondering how to best make an offer. It's a property in a high-end area called Rochester. Seller says it's a five-bedroom, three-and-a-half bath, 4,000-square-foot, three-car garage, no repairs needed, everything updated. The seller moved to Texas, has a $400,000 mortgage, and says there's a recent appraisal of 560. She would like to have 520 cash. I don't think a cash offer would work. The only other thing I can think of is doing an option on the property, need the goddess expertise on how to present the offer, or it might not be a deal. Well, let's start here. You're correct. 520 doesn't work. Because just think of it in this direction, this way. If that 560 appraisal is accurate, and you should not assume it's accurate, you should go comp it yourself. And you were to magically have $520,000 you didn't need anymore, and you bought this house from her and put it on the market at 560, 
you would not make money selling it. What are you talking about? There's $40,000 in equity there. Yes. And the real estate agent is going to take 6% of it. And the closing costs and transfer taxes and deed prep and all that sort of stuff, we're going to take another 4%. And, 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 the, and the inspector who comes in and finds stuff wrong with this house that there's nothing wrong with and tells you to fix it. Are going to, it's going to be 10% total to sell it. That's 50 grand. You're going to lose money at $520,000. So a couple of options. One is you could make her a cash offer. It's not going to be anything close to what she wants. And again, I'm just, I'm going to have to assume that, that this appraisal is accurate without, um, you know, any information to the contrary. And I'm going to say your offer is going to be 420 which is only a little bit higher than her mortgage, which would make me go toward the idea of find $20,000 to give her down and take over her mortgage. That's less of a cash investment for you. You can get it closed up and then you can put it on the market and hopefully sell it for 560 fingers crossed. The other one is exactly what you said. It is the possibility of leasing it from her with an option to buy it. The way that usually works is uh, you put down a minimal option fee, you negotiate a payment where you are certain you can get higher rent than the payment, and then you get the longest option you possibly can. If it is in fact worth 560 today, and she would give you a 15-year option to buy it for 560 at payments of 2000 a month, I'm guessing you can get more than 2000 a month rent for a half million dollar house. And in 15 years, it'll be worth a lot more than 560. So you would sell it in 15 years, not today. So there's, there's a couple of things you could do here, but I, I understand that she thinks she's offering a big old discount. We don't know that until we comp it ourselves. And the big old discount might be awesome for a home buyer, but it's not so great for an investor who needs to make money off the deal. I guess my question, Darren, if I were going to call her back right now, is why haven't you just sold it in MLS? Why, if, if, at 520, it seems like a homeowner would love a $560,000 house for $520,000. Why don't you just put it in MLS? And she may say, well, I've already done that and it didn't sell, which will tell you a lot about whether the property is really worth 560 or not. Uh, so, yeah. Go go ahead and give it a give it a whirl, but uh, it's either it's either got to be a much cheaper cash offer, and of course, it would be better if you could close this one because this sounds like a homeowner type house, not an investor type house. It sounds like one you would need to close and then put on MLS and resell, or some kind of creative offer that creates cash flow for a while and a low purchase price in the future. Today's purchase price would be a low purchase price in the distant future. A uh, question from Travis. I have a home under contract to buy subject to. The seller indicated about two weeks after signing the contract that she no longer wants to sell. My attorney says we could force the sale, but maybe there's another way that's less aggressive. Her reason for the change of heart is she can't afford any rentals in the area. Boy, didn't we talk about that at the beginning of the show? Um, so, Travis, in general, I'm... I recommend against suing sellers and making them sell their houses, even though you can and you will prevail because it will cost you money and it will just not feel good. Like the whole, the whole process will not feel good. Going to court is awful. Uh, 
you know, making a seller whose reason for not moving is that she can't afford any rentals in the area isn't going to make you feel good. I know that you are, you probably had some profit built into this house that you were maybe depending on, but so much better to go find another deal than to go to court on this one. I'll tell you how I have handled this in the last year when it has come up. Because one of the one of the questions I always ask somebody when I'm buying their property with payments is, "What are you going to do next? Where are you going? Have you got a, have you got a plan? Are you moving in with family? Do you have a place to rent? Do you even know where you want to rent?" And if they say no, one of the things I start to do is try and find them that rental they need. So perhaps, Travis, the way to do this is call her up and say, listen, you know, we made a deal here. I know you want to keep your end of the deal. And I understand that the problem is the rentals. What rental can you afford? Have you looked at um, things like Section 8? Have you, and maybe the seller's elderly, have you looked at, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of housing for people over the age of 55, but especially over 65, that is, uh, it's government supported. Now, often there's a waiting list for that, but if you could get her on the waiting list and say, look, fine, well, what we'll do is we'll just make the, we'll make the contract six months instead of one month. And we'll get you on that waiting list. And then the second they tell you, you can move in, then you are, then I'm ready to close. Uh, help help her out is what I'm saying. Uh, explore options with her like, is are there friends and family that you could potentially move in with? Is there is there some other part of the country you want to live in? Like not to try and get her to move to Alabama, but you know, she may say, you know, I've I've been wanting to move down to this really cheap place where I've got a grandson and, and maybe I'll start looking at rentals there. You know, she's scared right now. Don't scare her more. Work with her for as long as it takes to find her what she needs so that she can do what she said she was going to do. That's your solution, Travis. Okay, so a question here. Oh, this is a follow-up question from Diane, who asked the question earlier about the mixed-use property that's not mixed-use. Oh, and tells us she's from Michigan. She says, in trying to figure out the value of this property, can I use the estimated value listed in, and then she names a company that I won't name because it doesn't matter. The answer is no. I, if, when you say, when you say, can I use the estimated value in, fill in the blank. The answer is just no, you can't <laughs> because those, those estimated values are always done with what's called automated valuation models, AVMs. And every, the, the reason you see different, uh, values of a property when you like Google a property address and you're offered like five different websites that are telling you quote what the property is worth and it's five different things it's because each company uses a different automated valuation model but there's some there are always some kind of a median or a mean or a price per square foot type of model and it it it's not accurate it's just it's just not accurate so the the way to do it is do comps now in your particular case Diane you've got a problem in that I think what you have there is a five-unit commercial building with two stores and three apartments, one of which is unrented. I think that's what I gathered from your first email. And a property of that size is not actually evaluated via comps. It's evaluated via the income method. You have to know the income and expenses, and not just the expenses that this guy who hasn't been 
really working on it or taking care of it or fixing it up is reporting, but the expenses that it would actually take to run that building if you were fixing it up, etc. So uh, that's why I said get the income and expenses from the real estate agent and then there will be some more there we, you'll notice some lines missing. You'll, you'll be like, okay, so there's the taxes, there's the insurance, there's the utilities. Wait, there's nothing in here for maintenance. That's because he hasn't been maintaining it. Or it'll say maintenance, $54 a year, and you'll go, hmm, that doesn't seem right for a five-unit building. Okay, so so you're going to have to... It will buy some duct tape. <laughs> it will, and, and, and duct tape and foam and fill are the only things you need to fix stuff. I've seen examples of people who believed that about their foundations and their plumbing. I've got a whole, I've got a whole uh, thing on my Facebook page that's called um, duck, uh, foam and fill fixes everything. And I'm going to, I'm going to maybe start a page so that other people can send in their pictures too. He's, he's kidding, Diane, in case you're one of those people that doesn't speak sarcasm. Uh, so yeah, um, you're going to need to get all of that information and then apply a cap rate to it to come up with the real value. I mean, you can look at some like five families around and just get a general idea of what they're selling for, but you haven't really got a five family. You've really got a mixed use commercial building there, but no, the AVM will not work. So appreciate both of your questions, Diane. And we are at the end of our Q and A day for the month. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Mm-hmm.